0: good morning again cedar creek hold on guys i haven't preached since october and i come out here and give a good morning and i get good morning i think we could do better than that good morning cedar creek Thank you so much, guys. I am excited to be here. If you weren't in here for the welcome and have no idea who I am, my name is Rick. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at our Banks Mill campus, and I am excited to be here. Uh, This week is a little bit different. Usually, if you were here at this time, our senior pastor, Philip would come out and deliver a message, but we just wrapped up uh, a series last week called Reboot that was absolutely incredible. If you didn't get a chance to check that out, I would encourage you go online, uh, go to the Cedar Creek Church app and watch those past several weeks. Just a really, really, really encouraging and really challenging time to just walk through God's word together and examine what it means to reboot our lives to God's mission and vision and calling um, for our lives. And so if you weren't here for that, back up and watch it. But I want to tell you, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, as I was beginning to try to prepare, and this is kind of a weird one, so when we sit down and meet in a Tuesday morning meeting and discuss, hey, what are we going to teach, Philip, our senior pastor, said, hey, you have two weeks right here before we start our next series, and you can do whatever you want. And that's good news, but it's also bad news, because it's like, what am I... What am I, there's a lot of things that we could do here. There's a lot going on in the world. But one of the words that stuck out to me as we wound down the reboot series was the word discouragement. And the reason that that word kind of continually stayed in my mind is because I don't think there's one single word that better summarizes the entire world that we live in right now than discouraged. Right? Like, go home and watch the news. Somebody's mad at this politician because they did this. Somebody's mad at this politician because they didn't do this. Somebody's mad because the stimulus checks are only this much. Somebody's mad because stimulus checks are this much. Somebody's mad because stimulus checks take too long. Somebody's mad because stimulus checks come too fast. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Somebody is discouraged about everything that we see happening in the world around us right now. And so as I thought through that and I thought, what do I want to do this week as I had this opportunity to literally open up and do whatever it is, God, what do you have? What would you like me to lay before your church? And that word discouragement stuck in my mind. And so what I decided is that what God wanted me to do was try to encourage. And so what the goal of this morning is going to be is simply to encourage but then from the encouragement, what I am going to want to do is, if I can, from that, offer a little bit of, challenge, of a challenge for us as believers and as the church, God's body. So I want to first encourage us and then allow that encouragement to challenge us. But I'm going to back up a little bit, and I shared this with you in the welcome as well. My primary responsibility here at our Banksville campus is that I oversee our home groups. Shameless plug, it's the most important thing that we do at Cedar Creek Church is connect people in authentic community and the way that we do that is through home groups. If you are not plugged into one, do not leave here today without finding me or finding someone on our staff that help you get connected with a home group or tear off that card on the bottom of your program or or click on it if you're online and get that done. The most important thing that we do, I promise I'm not just saying that because it's my job. I promise you it's the most important life-changing thing that we can point you towards as a follower of Jesus is to be connected with other followers of Jesus. But in my role this week, yesterday actually, I got to teach home group leader training. And so I had a handful of people here who were seeking that next step of maybe becoming future home group leaders uh, in the Cedar Creek Church family. And if you've never done that, that class is from nine until just a little bit after one o'clock yesterday afternoon. So what I want to do this morning is I got home last night and calculated that by the time I wrap up this message, I will have in the past 24 hours spoken for greater than six hours in a format where I talk and nobody replies to me. All right, so I'm going to try to change that a little bit. Now, before you stand up and like, hey, I got some stuff I need to share with people. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I want to play a little bit of a game, okay, a little bit of participation. But here's what I'm going to tell you this is gonna require a little bit of trust on your part. And the trust is going to be that this is a safe place. And I recognize for some of you, this place has earned that trust, for some of you, this place has not earned that trust. And some of this is gonna be fun, some of it may be a little bit out of your comfort zone, but all I'm going to do is ask a series of questions. And what I want you to do is, if you would answer yes to that question, I just want you to raise your hand, okay? So I'm gonna ask a question, if your answer is yes, that applies to me, I want you to raise your hand. Does everyone understand the game? A few, ah, tricked you. Some of you got it. Some of you are tracking along with me. Thank you. All right, here we go. How many of you did not grow up in a church? Did not grow up in a church home? Okay, thank you. How many of you grew up in a church home and have really stayed connected with church your entire life? Okay, thank you. How many of you grew up in a church home, but then went through a season of your life where you kind of rebelled against the faith and left the faith and have come back? Cool. How many of you are nervous because you're sitting beside your kids and you're gonna to have to, sorry, all right. Our kids are here. I don't wanna raise my hand for that. I understand. Thank you for your honesty. Uh, how many of you came to faith after your 20th birthday? Thank you. How many of you came to faith after your 30th birthday? Cool. 40th? 50th. Wow. Okay. Awesome. All over the place. How many of you are from a home where your entire life um, your parents were happily married? Cool. How many of you are from divorced or separated parent homes? Cool. How many of your parents are married, but you don't know that you would describe them as happily? So how many of you are, if you're sitting with your parent, put your hand down. <laughs> All right. Uh, We'll change that and go a little bit different route. How many of you have a master's degree or higher? Cool. How many of you have a bachelor's degree or higher? How many of you have a high school diploma or GED, and that's the highest form of education that you have? Cool. We are a very, very degreed group of people. I didn't say smart, I said degreed. All right, now, listen to me. We're going to stop raising our hands. Please don't raise your hands because I don't want it to turn into an episode of a TV show we don't want to watch, but I want you to continue to think about these questions as I ask them. How many of you in this room would identify yourself as a Republican? Now you see why I told you not to raise hands. How many of you would identify yourself as a Democrat? Look me right in the eye. Don't look, make contact with anybody else. Just look at me. Safe place. Everybody's safe. We're all Okay. On a more serious note, how many of you have come from a home or have a history of drug or alcohol abuse in your life? How many of you have suffered some type of abuse in your life? All of these questions would be things that this world uses to define you. All of the questions that I just asked you is if what you will allow it to, the world will tell you should be the outcome of your life. But the reason, the purpose behind this, besides just wanting to actually interact with some people that I'm talking to, is because I wanna prove a point and I wanna be able to make a statement. Is that there's a myth, there's, a, there's this, this misinformation that goes around that Christianity exists for a certain group of people from a certain place. I'll ask some more questions and you can raise your hands to this one. How many of you are from outside of the South? Cool, but just like the bumper sticker said, you got here as fast as you could. All right. Thank you. Welcome. How many of you were born or have lived for a significant portion of your life outside of the United States? Anybody? Cool. A couple. Hands went up. So in this room, what we have just seen is that there's people from every educational background, every family background, every religious background, every place in the country background, every place in the world background. And here's what I'm trying to tell you. And the first thing that I want to encourage you for, your answer to any of the questions that I just asked does not qualify nor does it disqualify you from receiving the saving grace of Jesus Christ. None of them. And I could ask you a hundred more. We could compare tax, tax returns. We could do whatever it is you want to that the world tells you is the most important thing in your life. And the incredible news that I need you to walk in this morning is that none of those disqualify or qualify you from Jesus being able to save you. Jesus is able to save you. He is powerful enough to save you, and he is faithful to save you if you will call on his name, regardless of what the answer to any of those questions or the bazillion other questions that we could talk about would be. And so what I want to do this morning after we unpack that, or if we just unpack that truth, is I want to look at just two of the groups that Jesus saves from. And we could spend the rest of eternity looking at types of people Jesus saves, but I want to unpack two, and then again, from those, encourage us with something and challenge us with something. The first one is that Jesus saves the wayward and uninterested. If you flip in your Bible over to Luke chapter 7, we'll hang out there, we'll jump around just a little bit. There's a really cool story um, that happens between Jesus, um, a prostitute, and a Pharisee. And it opens up in verse 36. I'll read a little bit, and then we'll unpack a little bit, and then I'll read a little bit, and then I'll unpack a little bit. Starting in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7, it says this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, he being Jesus. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself If this man were a prophet he would have known who who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner And Jesus answering said to him Simon I have something to say to you and he answered Say it teacher Now I don't know how you read the Bible but I'm not a huge book reading kind of guy so what I have to do is insert myself into the story And so as I insert myself into the story as a fly on the wall or just somebody that maybe the Bible doesn't speak to specifically, I just like to see what is going on. So what we have happening here is that a religious leader has invited Jesus into his house. And this woman learns of this, this prostitute woman from the city learns of this and enters the house and just upon seeing Jesus is so overcome by his glory contrasted against her sin and the life that she walks in that she begins to weep and breaks down at his feet and begins to literally cry so much that there's so many tears she can wash his feet with the tears. But then the self-righteous religious leader in the crowd uses the, what's going on here to try to disprove Jesus and also try to make himself feel better. If you ever wanna know that an indicator that you're around a self-righteous person, the number one trait that they possess is that they use other people's failure to try to elevate themselves. That they'll use yours. Well, I never did this, but at least I'm not. And all that is is an attempt to justify my own failures because somebody else's are somehow worse than mine. And so this woman is here cleaning Jesus's feet, weeping, kissing his feet, wiping them with his hair. We pick up in verse 40, because I don't want to skip over something really cool that happens here. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it teacher. Now I want to pause because if you back up uh, a few verses earlier, Simon, this is not Peter, this is the Pharisee Simon, does not ask a question out loud. Simon thinks to who? Himself. He thinks to himself, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't be doing this, and then Jesus answers him. All right, I think sometimes we miss the coolness of the Bible just skimming over the fact that he's thinking, and I want you to put yourself in Simon's shoes now, he's having a thought And Jesus speaks to his thought. That's awesome and terrifying all at the same time. So I thought about that this week, and I'm like, if I ever find myself this side of heaven in Jesus's presence, I'm just gonna sit there and go, I delight in your law, I delight in your law, I delight, what was that? (laughs) I delight in your law. That's what I was saying. But Jesus literally speaks to his thought. And look at how he answers him. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I have entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. who even forgives sin. But I love the fact that Jesus ignores that completely, doesn't even respond to that question, looks back to the woman who's still weeping, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, the incredible reality of God's saving grace that we find here is that Jesus doesn't say, go and clean up. That Jesus doesn't say, go, but understand you're still going to be defined by who you were before this moment. Go, but be uneasy about your past. Go, but be uncertain about your future. Go, and I know it's it's going to be tough to trust in me. He tells her to go in peace. Not fear, not regret, not shame, but peace. Why? Because Jesus is demonstrating to this woman and to all of us that his power is greater than her failure that his forgiveness is greater than her sin, that Jesus saves the wayward. But the second group that we look out there is that Jesus is going to save the uninterested. Maybe the the greatest example that we have of this is found in Acts chapter eight and nine, and I know it's there on your program card. I'm not going to read all of those two chapters, but it'd be a great spot for you to go to. In Acts chapter eight and nine, we're introduced to a guy whose name is Saul, who is going to become Paul. And if you know anything about it, Saul is a religious leader in the Jewish church, a Pharisee who has made it his mission in life to crush the religion Christianity, to crush the people who have begun to follow Jesus and he has set out to do that. And so he has done that in Jerusalem. The first time that we pick him up, he is overseeing the stoning of a guy named Stephen who preaches about Jesus being the son of God. They drag him out of the church and kill him. And Saul is the one who approves of this. Saul is the one who oversees this. And then we get to Acts chapter 9 and Saul is armed with papers that give him permission to travel to another town called Damascus and continue to do what he has done, to drag out men, women, and children and have them killed for following Jesus. And on the way to Damascus, Jesus is going to knock him off of his horse and ask the question, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's going to go, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. There's some really cool theological stuff that we don't have time to talk about today that Jesus doesn't separate himself from his church. He says, why are you persecuting me despite the fact that Saul has been persecuting the church, that there's that level of love and intimacy between Jesus and his church, but that's not the point of today. That was a sidebar. We're getting back on track, all right? And on the way, Paul is not on the way to Bible school. He's not turned into a church setting because he feels bad about a sin issue in his life. That he is on the way to put to death believers and Jesus steps in, reveals to him who he is and Paul's only response to that is my life is yours. And the reason that we know that that's Paul's response is because from that point point forward, two thirds of the New Testament is going to be written by Paul. And he is going to follow Jesus his entire life, in fact, until they put him to death for doing just that. He is uninterested at best. And that's probably the most friendly adjective that we could use to describe where Paul is at the time that Jesus saves him. But why do we talk through this? Why did I want you to know that Jesus saves the wayward and uninterested? Because the encouragement that exists for you as a result of this reality is that it's not about you. The encouragement I want you to take this morning is it's not about you. Now, I recognize that this statement in our culture and language often doesn't feel very much like good news, right? A lot of times, this is like the parent who's about to lose it at the grocery store because the kid wants the pot. It's not about what you want. That's not what I mean in this. What I do mean in this is that there's not a single person in this room, and we can extend it there's not a single person on this planet who has out-sinned God's grace. There is not a single person on this planet who will be able to outsend God's grace. That God's grace is more sufficient, is more atoning than every microscopical trace of sin that we could find in all of human nature. That Jesus is greater than your sin. But it gets even better when you play that out and when you chase rabbit holes to understand what that means is that here's the the other encouragement of it not being about you. Your sin is no longer the most defining trait in your life. You are no longer defined by who you were before you knew Jesus. You no longer have to walk in shame or fear or condemnation or I'm not good enough or I can't be good enough or somebody else should do that. That's a job for a pastor. No, Jesus says, you are mine, you are loved. Walk in peace, walk with purpose. It's not about you. Jonathan Edwards, a 17th century pastor and theologian would word it this way. And I love this quote. It's a famous quote. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made your salvation necessary that we don't bring anything to the table, that none of us have behaved well enough, have come to enough church services, have grown up in a churchy enough home to deserve what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus is offering to the person beside you who just walked in here today that has completely rebelled against God. His grace is sufficient for you and his grace is sufficient for them because it's not about either one of us. Jesus can, does, and will save you. But from that encouragement, I also want to challenge us. And the challenge that I wanna lay before you, especially believers in the room this morning, is don't give up. And the reason that I picked this challenge, and it took me a while to land here, is if you know my story, you know that I would fit in that category of people who grew up in a church home and then had a season in which I kind of rebelled. I kind of, it's very generous to what I did, I have rebelled against God and against his will for my life and against the way that I was raised and against all of those things and Jesus and his grace drew me back in and brought me back into his family. But the interesting thing is since I've been following Jesus and working in ministry now for uh, over a decade, one of the things that happens in my life is people from that former life, the before Christ Rick, I encounter time and time and time again, and they're not hostile to God. They're not angry with God. They're just indifferent. They just seem to be uninterested. And my temptation in those moments is to get discouraged, is to go, God, Rick, you preach at church. You do all these things. You should be able to lead all of these people to the Lord. But the encouragement that I got this week is that it's not about me. I don't have the magical words. I don't have a magical phrase. I don't have a magical action. There's nothing that I can do that's going to somehow convince someone. But here's the incredible good news, Jesus does. And then it goes even farther than that. Here's what God commands us to do. Don't give up. Do you know how he commands us to do that? He says, don't stop asking. That our father God's parenting strategy for us is pester me on this. Bother me on this. Continually come to me with this. I have a two-year-old. Do you know what I've never done? Piper, just keep asking me until you break my will or I snap. But God's promise is exactly that to us. Continue to draw to me. Continue to ask. Continue to request. Because here's the good news that comes from this reality of it not being about us. Is for moms and dads in this room. You weren't too far gone. Neither is your son or daughter. For children in this room, you weren't too far gone. Neither are your parents. Neither is your coworker. Neither is your relative. Neither is your spouse. And Jesus says, draw near and ask. Continually ask. So here's what I'm going to do, and maybe this will make you a little bit uncomfortable. We're gonna play the raise your hand game again. If there's somebody or some people in your life and you're a believer in this room and you have just been asking God for as long as you can remember to create a heart in them that is receptive to this good news, that you've just been begging God to save them and they have not responded to that, and they seem to be completely disinterested. In fact, maybe they're even hostile toward it. I don't want that God stuff. Don't talk to me about that God stuff. Don't talk to me about that Bible stuff. If that's you, and there is somebody that you love in your life that you have been walking in that for a while, will you just put your hand up? Just throw your hand up. Cool. We're gonna take a second, and we're gonna do exactly what God did. I'm gonna pray, and I want you to pray with me for those people. We're not gonna wrap up the message yet. Sorry, you're not getting to lunch early, but we're gonna pray right here. Jesus Thank you, God, for your grace that's been encountered by so many people in this room this morning, that none of us did anything to deserve it, none of us did anything to earn it. God, but you gave it. But God, this morning in this room, there are people, there are people that we love that may be here, that may not be here. God, that we are begging you as the only one with the power to save, to create a heart in them that is receptive to your grace. God, not so that they can become a Christian badge or something we've accomplished, God, but so that they can walk in joy and experience the fullness and abundance of life that you've created for them. God, we are asking you to save them. We are pleading with you again, begging you to move in their life, that they need you. God, and we're begging you to give us an opportunity to share your good news with them. God, and to see them respond and to help them find their way back to you. Thank you, King Jesus, for your saving grace. It's because of that grace and in your name that we pray. Amen. The second group of people that I wanna look at this morning that Jesus saves is that Jesus saves from the religious and the self-righteous. If, you, if you're following along in the Bible or you got it on your iPhone, Android, however you're tracking along, we're going to flip over to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to look at the first three verses and then we'll kind of unpack what happens and then we'll read a few at the end of it. We're going to particularly focus on verse 3, but Luke 15, starting in verse 1, says this. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all dry, drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Okay, I want to specifically look at verse 3 there and make a couple of notes on that. Um, First off, Jesus is replying to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones grumbling that he is eating and dining with sinners. And so Jesus is responding to the church leaders at the time that are questioning the things that he's doing. The second is that this verse says that he told them this parable. If you continue to read all of Luke 15, which we won't because we don't have time this morning, you're going to see that Luke 15 actually consists of three parables. And so I don't think that Jesus is terrible at grammar. What I do believe is happening here is a lot like Star Wars. Do we have any Star Wars fans in the house? Anybody a Star Wars fan? You're right. All right, here, I'm going to confess something. And if you leave, it's, that's on you. I have never seen Star Wars. I've seen all of Star Wars Episode One and I got halfway through Star Wars Episode Two and decided I could not do it. It was not for me, so I'm sorry. But Luke chapter 15 exists like Star Wars in this. Is that he tells three stories that are all really a part of one bigger narrative that he is trying to communicate. And so he's going to tell the story of the lost sheep, he is going to tell the story of the lost coin, and then he's going to tell the most well-known of that chapter, the story of the prodigal son. And if you don't know that story, here's what happens. A man has two sons. The younger son comes to the father and says, you're dead to me, basically, I want my inheritance, I want to go and be able to do whatever it is I want to be able to go. So the father gives it to the younger son, the younger son goes and wastes it on reckless living. And then he literally finds himself in a pigsty and comes to the realization, my father's servants have it better than this. And so he prepares this whole speech. I'll go back to my dad. I'll tell him I've sinned against God and against him. Make me like one of your servants. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He gets out of the pigsty and he begins walking. The father sees him a great distance off and begins running down the road. And he grabs the younger son and the son begins the speech and the father's not having any of the speech. He goes, no, 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 no. Put a ring on, put a robe on, put a shoes on, kill the fattened calf, we're having a filet, get the band ready, get the wine out, we're having a party, my son who was lost has come home. And so that's the famous part of the story but if you know the story of the prodigal son, that's not where it ends. Is that we're then introduced to the older brother, the rule follower in the crowd as he's coming back from the field where he's been working, doing what his father asked him to do, and he hears the noise, and he stops the servant, and he says, what's happening? And the servant says, your brother's come home, your father's throwing him a party, and the older brother's response is recorded in Luke 15, starting in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate, celebrate with my friends. If I can be honest with you, I've struggled with this part of the story for the bulk majority of the time I've been following Jesus because I have a heart for the younger brother. Because the younger brother is my story and I couldn't ever really understand this older brother's perspective how do people gravitate toward religion? Why does humanity bent toward religion? And the answer to that is because of the reason that the first encouragement that I offered feels so contrary is because we want it to be about us. And religion is about us. I'm going to make a generalization that'll really drive this home and maybe help you understand it a little bit more. I'm going to make a generalization about men. It's not going to be true of every man. It is true of me, and it will probably be true of a lot of you if you're in the room and willing to to be honest with yourself. Men are, by and large, task-oriented. We like to just tell us what to do, let us do it we'll do it. We don't need anything else. We'll just rock and roll. We will do all of those things. And what I've learned is I think one of the reasons that men are like that is because if we're just checking off tasks, we don't actually have to interact. We can just go. And so here it is. Give me a task. I will do it. But listen to me. Don't ask me how I feel. I don't know. Okay, I have no idea. We don't, we're frustrated or we're accomplishing the task and we're frustrated with the task. That's somewhere between where we are. Anything outside of that, we don't really understand what's happening, okay? But we all migrate that way. And so I began to understand the older brother's perspective because that's who he is. Give me the task. I'll accomplish it. I'll find my worth in what I complete. I'll find my worth in what I can do. I'll find my worth in all of these things. So we're bent towards this way because we want it to be about us. But I love the father's response to the older brother. And he, talking about the father, said to him, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found see, my response to this older brother would have been, here's your goat, we're having filet. Go do whatever it is, go eat whatever part of a goat it is that you eat, we'll be in here having a party. But the father's response is, no, 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 no. Come in, come in, because the encouragement from the reality that Jesus saves the religious and the self-righteous that the father offers the older brother and that God offers us this morning is that it's your party too. Jesus' invitation is very clear. Come to me all that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Here's the reality from somebody who's walked in ministry and walked with Jesus for a long period of time. I've never met a religious person who wasn't tired and exhausted from trying to do it on their own. Stop settling for goat. Go in and eat the filet. So the challenge is simply that, go inside. Go inside, be a part of what it is that God is offering and calling you to. It's your party, come inside, celebrate that grace. Now that we've concluded the intro, if you turn over to Matthew chapter five, I'm halfway kidding, we'll be out of here by three-ish. I'm still, I'm, that time I'm really kidding, we'll be out of here before three, 2.30 at least. All right, Matthew chapter five is the beginning of Jesus' Um giving what's called the Sermon on the Mountain, he issues an interesting command to his church and to the people who would follow him. He says this in Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, Jesus' challenge to us is that we would be the people as a body of believers who preserve his character and portray the reality that Jesus is saving these types of people. And so listen to me very clearly in the room. There are people who will spend eternity in heaven that have Trump stickers on their car. And there will be people who spend eternity in heaven who have Joe Biden stickers on their car. There will be people who spend eternity in heaven who their entire life vote Democrat, and there will be people who spend eternity in heaven who entire vote Republican. You see, the incredible thing that happens here is that Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that this salvation isn't just an American command, it's a worldwide thing. But as somebody who's in charge of small groups, I can tell you just the realities that we've looked out this morning is a recipe for disaster in small group, because here's how this plays out. We have a girl who has come out of an outright rebellion against God, who is recovering from a history of drugs and alcohol abuse, who is sitting in a small group with somebody who's come out of religious background, who is crying and broken because they were accidentally in a room for 30 minutes with somebody who was smoking cigarettes and they feel really bad about it. And then to top that off, we have somebody from some other place in the world who is just offended by everything that's going on in the entire circle. And God saves all of those people. But then here's the incredible part of it. Not only does he save them. He calls them into a family together. And the saltiness of God's church is in this. We are not defined by the things that separate us. We're defined by the things that unify us. And the thing that unifies us is that all of us needed desperately grace that we could not provide for ourselves. And Jesus gave it to us. And so if you want to know how we are going to impact this world, it is not going to be by convincing people that their politics are stupid. It's not going to be by convincing people what tax code we should be in. It's not going to be by any of those things. It is going to be by looking at people who are different from us, who believe different from us, who vote different from us, who support things that we may or may not support, and going like this, you are my brother or sister because of who Jesus is, not because of who you, who you are, and I will stay united with you fighting for you for the good of the gospel until it reaches the ends of the earth and that's how we are going to reach a world that is in desperate need it is not a message that we carry to the broken world that we are people who have it all together who look think and act the same the message of christianity is this this is a room full of broken hurting messed up People who have all gotten it wrong, but who have been restored by Jesus and who walk in the joy of that in a brotherhood that's deeper than anything this world could possibly offer us. And so we've abandoned the world to pursue that. And so we will sell everything that we have to make that glory and that God known. So, my challenge as we close this morning is first this that when we come in here as a church family, that we would cling to that hope. That we wouldn't run to the things that separate, to the things that divide us, to the things that drive wedges between us, but that we would gather in here to encourage one another with this hope. We have all been forgiven of something that we could have never even begun begin to deserve. And because of that, I will walk in joy and I will call you my brother and sister and we will reach this world because we look differently. And then the challenge is after we pull in here and cling to that hope, let us be a people who then carry it. That our world won't see Cedar Creek churches arguing over politics on Facebook and pointing out all of the petty differences that, listen to me, aren't going to matter in eternity. And let us be a people who cling to one another because of what Jesus has done in us and what he has called us to do so that the world might look at us and say, there's something different about you. I want that. And then may we be people who are faithful to point them to that hope and then faithful to walk with them step by step by step by step as they find their way back to God and all of us walk in that common objective. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning I thank you again just for who you are. God, that we could spend every Sunday for the rest of eternity just basking in your identity. Just marveling at who you are as a God. But God, this morning I thank you specifically for being a God who saves, a God who redeems, a God who transforms. And so my prayer this morning is first and foremost for the person in this room who needs that. God who came in here and they're tired they may be wayward they may have been in a season of rebellion and everything that they've run to every person that they've run to every substance that they've run to everything that they've clung to God has not provided for them the hope and the peace and the restoration that they hoped it would and they got here this morning and they're tired God this morning may they encounter your grace may they see that your invitation is to find salvation and it not be about them And may they walk out of here in peace that they're not their biggest failure and they're not their biggest success. They are yours. They are a child of God woven together intricately in your image for your glory regardless of how good or poorly they feel like they've done. May they walk in that hope and that promise. God, for those of us in this room who have trusted that but have since begun to cling to religious things and politics and God, these things that are so secondary, so far down the list. God, may you break our heart for the fact that while we're arguing over things that don't matter, people are perishing and going to spend eternity separated from you. And may we unite with these people, our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to see your name, your goodness your glory transform every corner of this world. We love you, King Jesus. It's because of your grace and only in your name that we